Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Robert T. Mansfield, MD, about the article, The Use of Pediatric Ventricular Assist Devices in Children's Hospitals from 2000 to 2010, Morbidity, Mortality, and Hospital Charges, published in the July 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Mansfield is a cardiac intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today, Bob. Oh, you're welcome, Margaret. Thanks for having me. Would you start by giving us some sort of background on the development of ventricular assist devices, particularly for use in pediatric patients? Sure. So ventricular assist devices were originally developed for use in adult patients. And uh, I think in the 1980s, they became very prevalent and, and really took off. And then probably in the late 80s, early 90s, they started to be used in pediatric patients. I mean, there's several reports around that time. And initially, it was using these adult-designed devices in bigger pediatric patients, so adolescents. And then there was actually a report using various types of devices in in different size kids, even down as small as two and a half kilos. But the devices were for adults. They had to be modified. So, you know, during that time, the folks in Berlin were developing a specific pediatric designed uh, heart. So, the you know, in 1992, the pediatric heart X-Core device became commercially available. And that, you know, started a great number of increase in the use of pediatric ventricular assist devices. So that's kind of how it all got started. And then, of course, here in the States, we had the Berlin Heart X-Core, the Investigational Device Exemption Trial, which is done by Chuck Frazier et al., and that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. And they showed in that study that use of the Berlin Heart X-Core device was very much superior to using ECMO as a bridge to heart transplant. And that paved the way for it to get FDA approved. So it's not only the Berlin Heart X-Core that, you know, is being used in pediatrics. It's certainly continuous flow devices, the same devices that are used in adults are used in bigger patients. So that's kind of how it all got started and sort of where it's gone to. And have they primarily, at least initially, been used for bridge to transplant? Yeah. Most of the time, the intention when you implant a VAD, a pediatric VAD, is is as a bridge to transplant. Depending on the circumstance, you know, if it's, for instance, a myocarditis, there's always some hope that it may be a bridge to recovery. think that's talked about a lot more than it ends up being the reality. So, but yeah, the vast majority of times, it's as a bridge to transplant. So tell us about your study. What led you to do this study and what did you do? So this technology predominantly started out as as something that the adult world uses and and it's very common now. And as we mentioned, it's sort of got adapted for pediatric use and the development of a a pediatric-specific device. But there's a lot of literature and a lot of data on VADs in adults, but not very much on VADs in pediatrics. Dave Morales and the group from Houston published a paper looking, I think it was sometime in the 2000s, where they just looked at one year in the kids' inpatient database to see what the prevalence in the use of VADs was. That was just kind of a one-year snapshot kind of picture. And there have been, you know, various anecdotal and case reports, but not any kind of big study looking at VAD use in pediatrics over time to look at how mortality is changing, what are the comorbidities, what are the costs. So we thought it would be valuable to look at that. That's what spurred this paper. So how did you go about addressing all of those questions? 
So we thought, and you know, I clearly have to give a nod to Joe Rosano. He was a mastermind behind this whole paper, and Joe's a heart failure specialist and was gracious enough to include me on this project. So we looked at the, the FIS database. That's the Pediatric Health Information Systems Database which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's a big administrative database that covers about 40 or so pediatric hospitals in North America. And that probably accounts for about 70% of pediatric admissions. Of course, some pediatric admissions occur at adult hospitals and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So we're not capturing all pediatric admissions and all pediatric VADs, but a, a great majority of them. So we looked at the FIS database over the time period from 2000 to 2010, because that clearly is an era that captures kind of the advent, the beginning of VAD use, and, and, and a period of rapid growth. So we looked at that database and looked at the numbers and what's the mortality and how is it changing in terms of the age of patients that are getting VADs, is that changing, the comorbidities, especially renal failure and cerebrovascular accidents, and looking at center size and volume and how that may impact outcomes. So th those are the things we looked at. Tell us what you found. So... What we found is that over that time period from 2000 to 2010, there were 475 pediatric patients who received VADs. And we broke that time period up into three roughly equal eras. So era one was 2000, 2003, era two was 2004 to 2006, and then era three was 2007 to 2010. And over the different eras, you can just see the growth of VADs. So in, in era one, the earliest era, within our database, there were about 17 VADs per year being implanted. And then by the latter end of, of our, our era from 2007-2010, there were 78 VADs per year. So that's like more than quadrupling the number of VADs that were being put in. So it, you know, it confirmed what I think everyone already suspected, that VAD use was really on the rise. We found that mortality was decreasing in the early era of the study. Mortality for a patient who got a pediatric patient who got a VAD was 42%. And by the latter era of the study, mortality was down to 25%. We found that younger patients are more likely or, or becoming more and more likely to receive a VAD. So, for instance, the age group 1 to 12 years in the first era that we looked at, only 29% of the patients were in that 1 to 12 year age group. But by the latter era, 47% of the the patients were between 1 to 12 years. So clearly a younger set of patients are, are able to become available to get VADs. Cardiomyopathy has always been counted for a majority of the patients, but that went from 52% up to 72%. We saw less renal failure, so acute renal failure. And I want to point out that from our database and the way we extracted the data, we can't tell if the renal failure is occurring before the VAD was put in or after, so that it is one limitation. But regardless, renal failure went down from 49% down to 33%. What was interesting and a little disconcerting is that cerebral vascular accidents were actually increasing. And in the early era, it was 14%, and it went up to 33% in the latter era. Now, some of that, I think, may be just numbers and the fact that a lot of patients in the early era were dying, so maybe they you just weren't picked up as having a CVA, but still something clearly we need to work on. Length of stay has increased a lot. The costs of pediatric patient hospitalizations when you get a VAD is increasing a lot. And the other important finding was that center size had a big impact on mortality. If you had your VAD implanted in a large center, then your mortality was much better. The mortality was 25% compared to 45% at not a large center. So those are the main findings of our study. Has the indication for VAD use changed over the, time, over the period of time? You did mention that a higher proportion of patients have cardiomyopathies, but what other kinds of things is it used for? 
Yeah. I mean, cardiomyopathy accounts for a larger percentage of the patients nowadays. You know, as we discussed earlier, bridge to transplant is clearly far and away the main indication for a pediatric patient to get a VAD. We didn't have the ability to look at that in in this database with this study. We know clearly from the adult data that they are moving towards using the VAD as destination therapy. In fact, in about, I think it was in 2012, if you look at the Kirkland Intermax database in 2012, the number of adult VADs that were put in as destination therapy out was more than the number of VADs put in as a bridge to transplant. So that's clearly a trend that they're seeing in adults. I don't have any data, and I'm not, I'm not sure what data is out there on that trend in pediatrics, but I think it's clearly at the forefront of everyone's mind. More and more VADs are being implanted in pediatric patients, and we do have this rather large pool of patients that are now coming of age, kids mm-hmm. who have gone down a single ventricle pathway, and we know that patients who've had Fontans are going to encounter problems down the road, and a lot of them may become candidates for mechan- needing mechanical circulatory support. And so the pediatric pool of patients that are going to be VAD candidates and potentially transplant candidates is going to outnumber the number of available donors. So we're going to have to decide, is destination therapy going to become a a more common thing that we're seeing in pediatrics? So that's clearly coming down the pike pretty fast. Yeah, you're clearly, you're increasing the number of potential transplant recipients, but we're not really increasing the number of donors. So that's an interesting conundrum. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you're being successful. You have lower mortality and greater use. On the other hand, there are limited resources to get some of these kids, at least, off of ad. Yeah. And yeah, the, the pediatric heart transplants, I mean, they do probably 400 to 450 per year in the United States, and that number has plateaued, and nobody wants that number to go up. We don't want to see children who are, you know, having awful catastrophic events that make them a heart donor. So, right. And, and so, right. It, as a societal level, it's a, it's a difficult problem that we're going to have to try to figure out. So, why do you think the mortality with bad use has decreased so much over the time periods that you looked at? I think that experience in a nutshell, experience is a major reason. We have this relatively new and rapidly evolving technology where the indications are changing and surgical techniques are being refined and and the medical management after a patient receives a VAD is being refined and hopefully improved. So I just think there's been a lot of lessons learned over the past decade or two decades and hopefully we're learning from that and being able to manage these patients better. So just better patient management. I think patient selection may play a role. I can think of, you know, you have a new technology we're not that familiar with. It's clearly a, a huge commitment to utilize this technology. So when do you pull the trigger? And perhaps early on, we were waiting a long time. Patients were getting sicker. We were in, therefore implanting the VADs in sicker patients. That may have accounted for a higher mortality. Perhaps nowadays, we're more comfortable with VAD use. We have a better sense of who's going to benefit from the VAD. And so maybe we're implanting them earlier. There's no data on that. This is just speculation. When you look at the adult databases, they clearly are implanting them earlier. The, the, the you know patients are at, at a less severe stage in their heart failure, and they're getting VADs implanted earlier. And that's been well documented in the adult population. We don't have that kind of data in PEDS, but you mm-hmm. know we, we think that may be the case. So earlier use of VADs, better patient selection, and just overall more experience, I think, is what is driving the improved mortality.
Yeah, I think your data on the improved outcomes in larger volume centers compared to smaller volume centers also supports that speculation. Yeah, yeah. Other studies have supported that. The Morales study that I uh, mentioned earlier clearly shows that higher volume centers have better outcomes. Chris Allman's study looking at uh, all the Berlin hearts, not just the ones that were in the IDE trial, but the whole 204 cohort of patients. On univariate analysis, they found that higher volume center had better mortality. On multivariate analysis, they were not able to show that. But other studies have shown this trend. And it clearly makes intuitive sense that if you're doing a lot of these, you get more experience and hopefully you can get better at it. Why has the length of stay and I suppose related to that, the hospital charges increased so much? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, if I want to make the case that we're selecting patients better and we're putting VADs in earlier as an excuse or as an explanation for why our mortality is better, then, then it's hard to say, gee, yeah, we, and yet we have longer length of stay and, and higher costs. I, I don't know. And we've talked about this. It's hard to explain. I mean, the medical world, every year and every decade, we just have more mm-hmm. diagnostic capabilities and more therapeutic capabilities. We're very aggressive about sending a kid to the cath lab when we think there's a problem or subtle neurologic changes. You get a full, you get a CT and an angiogram mm-hmm. and an MRI. And we've had kids go for neurologic interventions where we've pulled clots out of their MCA just mm-hmm. as an anecdotal thing. But I just think we have more technologies, more newer technologies at our disposal. And we go out on such a limb, you implant a VAD in a kid and you just want to do everything right. you can to, to give them the best shot of the good outcome. And we do have so much at our disposal. I just think we have more things to use and they get used. But that's just speculation. It's it's a little hard to really accurately know why these costs are going up. It's hard to say. Do you have any data on how many of these kids who got VADs went on to get transplants? In our study, looking at the FIS database, and we lost kids who got discharged. They were lost to follow up from our ability. Mm-hmm. But in our study, 69% survived, 52% of them got transplants. So that leaves you kind of a gap of around 17% of kids who survived but didn't get transplanted. Now, did some of them recover and have their device removed? That's possible. Did some Mm -hmm. of them go home with the device and kind of were lost to our follow-up within the confines of this study? That's possible. Did some of these kids have temporary devices implanted? There's the Rotaflow and the Centromag and the Tandem Heart, which are designed for temporary support. So some of those kids may account for some of that 17% who survived but never got a transplant. I know in you know, the Berlin Heart Trial, the vast majority of survivors did get transplants. I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. But I would say the vast majority, uh, you know, if you have 75% kids surviving, you know, I think the vast majority of those survivors are getting transplants in the pediatric world anyway. So are you increasing the number of transplant candidates and hence they're waiting longer to get the hearts? Is that potentially a contribution to the length of stay? I think that's a great point. That's potentially a contribution. We know that the waiting period to get a pediatric heart transplant is over 100 days, and the mortality while you're on that list is about 17%. And yeah, now we're adding more and more patients to that. So increasing the pool of patients who are waiting to get a heart transplant, that certainly could account for increased length of stay. We do try to get these kids home. 
From the day that Iskare Vad implanted, one of our major goals is to get them out of bed, mobilize, and get all the physical therapy that they need. And, and our goal is to get them home while they're waiting. So we're trying to not have these long length of stays, but the data shows otherwise that we are having long length of stays. So hard to explain that. What about the use of ECMO with the VAD? Our study shows that a patient who receives a VAD, if that patient had ECMO prior to getting their VAD, they had a worse outcome with an odds ratio of about three. And that was also shown in the Berlin Heart Trial. So I think if you want to look prospectively at your patient who is not doing well and may need a transplant or may need mechanical support. If you can, uh, I think we're trying to skip the step of them going on to ECMO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's another complication. It's more technology. It's more risk for morbidity. On the other hand, there are kids who, gosh, there's a kid with myocarditis. Is he going to turn around in a week or two? You're loathe to put a VAD in that patient. And then sometimes ECMO is, is an option for that child. Maybe you can put them on ECMO as a bridge to decision and see if they're going to get better or if they're going to need a VAD. So, I mean, if we had a crystal ball and we could say, where is this kid going to be yeah. in two weeks or four weeks, that would help us make a decision on, on using ECMO or not using ECMO. I mean, clearly you'd like to avoid it, but it clearly is, is a major piece in our armamentarium and still is used yeah. not infrequently in, in these types of patients. And that goes back to your earlier comments about patient selection and using using VADs earlier, but it's, as you just said, it's not always so simple. Yeah, it's not. And we don't have the data or the knowledge to say exactly when to put the VAD in. So sometimes right. you're stuck in a gray zone and you want to do what's right for the patient. And you'd hate to put a VAD in and then see their function get much better. And conversely, you'd hate to wait too long and see their end organ function get worse. So hopefully with time, we can accrue more data and, and be able to decipher more clearly who needs a VAD now and, and when to put the VAD in. So those are, you know, that's a, a lot of fog, foggy area that we're still trying to work out. So where do we, what, what next steps do we need to take? What data do we need? What technology do we need with regards to the use of VADs in children? Yeah, I think some of the points we've already addressed, like patient selection, who's going to benefit from a VAD, who do you think is going to get better, and, and when to implant the VAD. I, there's a lot of uncertainty about that, and hopefully with more data we can make better decisions about that. Some of the morbidity associated with VADs, renal failure is something that we'd like to avoid. Perhaps by using VADs sooner, we can avoid some of that morbidity. But I think even more important is cerebral vascular accidents. I mean, they're still occurring at a, in about a third of patients, and that is a big problem. That obviously is yeah. an organ that does not have the recovery potential of a kidney, nor does it have the replacement options <laughs> that you have with renal right. failure. So, you know, is that part of our coagulation management. We need to do a better job with that. We're always trying to refine our anticoagulation techniques. The group in Berlin had a report where they had only 9% incidence of cerebrovascular accidents, so maybe they're doing hmm. something that we can learn from. But I think in terms of morbidity associated with VADs, cerebrovascular accidents are, are clearly something that we need to get better on. You know, the adults in going from earlier in the in the VAD period, they were using pulsatile devices. They've clearly made the switch to continuous devices, and, and they've shown they have less uh, cerebrovascular morbidity with that and better survival. We also, in our bigger pediatric patients, I'm talking, you know, kids 
10 years and older, generally, we can use continuous devices on, and that's good. In our smaller patients, we're still using pulse-style devices, and the Berlin Heart is a great, great device. They're trying to develop some continuous flow devices in kids. Those are still in the development stages. They're not clinically available. And even if we do develop continuous flow devices for smaller patients, we still don't know if continuous flow devices are going to have less cerebrovascular morbidity than the pulse-style devices. So all these questions still need to be answered. But I think cerebrovascular accents are clearly a, a big, big morbidity, and we really are trying hard to do a better job of, of minimizing that, that morbidity. So the, I think that's an important area that our research has to focus on. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I would just, I want to thank my co-authors who, you know, everybody worked hard on this and, and people had great comments and great insight. Joe Rosano spearheaded the whole thing and was really instrumental in doing this. So I appreciate his wisdom and help. The reviewers did a really nice job of pointing out some, some important things about our paper and things we can improve on. So I, I appreciate their input and I thank you for having me on your show. It has been my pleasure. Likewise. We have been speaking today with Dr. Robert Mansfield from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about his article, The Use of Pediatric Ventricular Assist Devices in Children's Hospitals from 2000 to 2010, Morbidity, Mortality, and Hospital Charges, published in the July 2015 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.